The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the now weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our post-yet still very racial America. You could say all that or just call the show about race. I'm Anna Holmes, and joining me from the Panoply Studios in Brooklyn, New York, are panelists Tanner Colby. Hi, Tanner. Hello. Baratunde Thurston. Hi, Baratunde. What's good, Anna? <laughs> and via Skype, Roxanne Gay, who contributes op-eds and essays to publications like the New York Times and is the author of several books, including Bad Feminist, An Untamed State, and Coming Soon, Hunger. Welcome to About Race, Roxanne. Hello, Anna. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. More like Roxanne Yay, am I right? <laughs> Roxanne Yay. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Thank you. You Thank should you. change your Twitter handle to, to say that, Roxanne. For a day. Just for a day. Just for a day. Roxanne Yay for a day. <laughs> Roxanne Yay in the house. Hashtag Roxanne Yay. Let's get that trending, y'all. <laughs> so the first topic we're going to discuss is Nate Parker, the director, Nate Parker. In case you're not familiar, the 36-year-old actor-producer-director was accused of rape in 1999 when he was in college at Penn State. He and his then-roommate, John Celestin, were tried for having sex with a fellow student, a freshman, who claimed she was unconscious at the time. Parker claimed that the sex was consensual and was acquitted. Celestin was convicted and served six months of jail time, but on appeal, his case was dismissed. And as we learned just a few weeks ago, the victim, a white woman, committed suicide in 2012. So why is this news now? Because Parker's forthcoming film, the hotly anticipated slave rebellion narrative, The Birth of a Nation, is coming out next month. And by the way, Jean Celestin, he's the movie's co-writer. Of course, being a movie about slavery, how the birth of a nation deals with rape, violence, and the historical tensions around the proximity of black men to white women is something viewers should be watching closely. But right now, it feels like potential audiences are watching Parker a lot more. In the past few weeks, Parker has given interviews to entertainment news site Deadline Hollywood, as well as Ebony Magazine, and even released a statement on Facebook. But to many, it's not enough, and the way he's discussed the issue hasn't sat well with some, including me. So I want to start with the Ebony interview that Nate Parker did last weekend. I believe it was last Saturday. Have you guys read it? What did you think? Actually, I'll direct it at Roxanne, because you wrote an op-ed for The Times a little over a week and a half ago, in which you wrote that you will not be seeing the birth of a nation, because you cannot, quote, separate the art and the artist, just as I cannot separate my blackness and my continuing desire for more representation of the black experience in film from my womanhood, my feminism, my own history of sexual violence, my humanity. So uh, I'll throw it out to you, Roxanne. What did you what did you think of, of this interview that he gave? You know, at first, I didn't quite know what to think, but I appreciated seeing at least a public willingness to grow and to change. At the same time, my first thought was he's finally hired a good publicist, <laughs> except for three or four of the answers. They were like pitch perfect. Yeah. But then when you really look at some of what he had to say, you know, me and my friends, we were just dogs and that he hadn't thought of the victim once in the past 17 years, just his overall attitude, like that he never really thought about gender and that the way he understands consent, there still doesn't seem to be a sense from him that he understands what went wrong that night. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I understand that young men oftentimes don't really understand what consent is because we don't talk about consent well. We're getting better, but we're still not there yet. But there was a third man there and he saw the situation and he saw the young woman drunk and he realized he wanted no part of it. And so that really is what kills me in this whole thing, that someone did walk away and these two men did not. And then the campaign of harassment against the victim afterward is another thing that I just can't stomach and that he also didn't address. And so, you know, it's a step in the right direction, I suppose. And I want to give credit where credit's due. I mean, we have to be willing to, we have to be willing to let people change and admit wrongdoing, but he doesn't seem to be doing at least the second thing. Yeah, you know, what, what was interesting about the Ebony interview versus at least the first interview that I read, which was with Deadline Hollywood, was they were markedly different. The, the, the Deadline one, 
is the interview in which he really made it all about himself in a way that was really gross. And the language in the Ebony interview did feel like he'd been media trained, at least with regards to conversations around sexual assault. He was using terms like toxic masculinity and rape culture. And as much as those are perhaps like signals that he is starting to get it, I was also my the cynical part of myself was just kind of like rolled my eyes at that because I it, it felt like someone had told him to use certain terms and and then he you know and then this this would start dying down and so I, I hate to be cynical about these things but I really did feel like it was it was part of his media training. That said, I don't think that Fox Searchlight prepared for any of this in the way mm-hmm. the, the distributor in the ways that they could have because of his tone deaf initial commentary. I actually <laughs> the I agonized over writing that editorial because my movie is coming out on Fox Searchlight. Ah. And mm. I yeah. Wait, can you can you tell can you just so the so the listeners know can you tell us what the movie is? Uh yes, my novel An Untamed State. Yeah. I'm adapting it with Gina Prince-Bythewood right. for film and Fox Searchlight is the studio that bought the option and the movie. Yeah, anyway, I agonized and I agree. I don't think they were at all prepared. What do you guys think? I want to, I feel less pessimistic after the Ebony interview and watching the video mm-hmm. of his, for 12 minutes he's speaking, not really with the interviewer, kind of with himself mm-hmm. in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I give people credit for acknowledging that they've made mistakes. Mm-hmm. Clearly there was some training going on, but I also think there was a, some significant internal processing that has begun to happen, mm-hmm. perhaps 17 years late, mm-hmm. but it has <laughs> begun to happen. And to hear him say, this is what was wrong with my answer. He clearly read Roxanne's piece. Like he, yeah. But it wasn't even, he wasn't hiding the fact that he read it. Yeah. He acknowledged by name, I read Roxanne Gay's piece. Mm-hmm. I read these other writers' pieces and I had to check myself. Mm-hmm. I read the internet comments mm-hmm. and I'm like, is this the person who I am? Because I'm coming across as this heinous individual. I'm offending all these people and I don't see it. And the most powerful credit I will give him is one that emerged from one of the interviews in my book, How to Be Black. Mm-hmm. And I, I was talking to W. Kamau Bell, mm-hmm. who had a, uh, he has a show, United Shades of America, on CNN right now. And I asked him, what does he want for the future of blackness and race in America? And he basically said, look, I want every group to shift one over. I want black people fighting for immigrants. I want immigrants fighting for gays. I want gays fighting for women. Um, we have to move it all forward at the same time. And, and most specifically, more accurately, he said, you can't end racism and make sexism worse. You can't end racism and make homophobia worse. Mm -hmm. And I felt like Nate was channeling that perspective. And he also acknowledged that this is early days for him. Mm -hmm. He said, look, don't judge me yet. These are nice words coming out of my mouth. See what I do after this. I really want to be committed and be better. And I've been blinded. So I I think he aired a lot of thoughts that a lot of guys have if they felt like it was okay to say out loud how little they did know about sex, how horrible the environment or blank the slate was in terms of how you come of age and and treat women. So it's a good start. I don't think it's like, oh, we're all good now. Let's move on to the next topic, which is kind of our our media habit. But let's look at him over the next months and years Mm -hmm. and see if he sticks with a more intersectional approach to the definition of justice. And Mm -hmm. him acknowledging that he can't profess to be for justice while denying justice for others and be so down about race and so ignorant on gender those were the exact right words. There is some training in that, but even if it's training, like it's something people need to hear, mm-hmm. and he is a great mouthpiece for it. Mm-hmm. Right. Tanner, what about you? I felt like the the first interviews with Deadline and, and Variety, which were, like as you said, self-serving, knee-jerk reactions, the Ebony interview felt like a coached publicist talking points interview, and then this interview at the Merge Festival, which, which Baratunde just referenced, felt like the first stirrings, like you said, of a genuine mea culpa and soul-searching. And the fact that he didn't think about the victim or the incident or for 17 years strikes me as perfectly normal. If, if you're engaged with something heinous and horrible and in denial about it yourself, you're, you're going to push it as far down as possible. And AKA not think about America. It. Right. So, yeah. I, that, <laughs> the, so people are like, oh, my God, he didn't think about the victim for the last 17 years. Well, of course he didn't for the last 17 years. That strikes me as, as deeply human. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, like when I, when I first heard that, that he hadn't when he admitted he hadn't thought of her. 
my reaction was similar to yours, but with a different kind of timber to it. It mm. was like, oh, yeah, of course he didn't. Somewhat right. somewhat bitterly, just because right. to me it felt like when someone harms you, especially as a woman, and you've had experience with sexual assault or, or men who have been emotionally abusive in, in some way, you you know, as you get older, you wonder, do they ever think about that? And I guess, you know, the, the thing about his answer was, oh, maybe, maybe they don't. Maybe they don't think about it at all. Um, right. So I was actually a little pissed by that, even though it was very honest. Yeah. Right. I have to say I agree with Anna. For me, it was... My response to that was personal because I think about my rapists every Mm -hmm. day and I really, really, really wish I didn't because it's been 29 years. Like I shouldn't be thinking about these men still, but I am. So the thought that I never once crossed their mind while they still dominate so much of my, I mean, not as much, it's not like an ongoing trauma thing or in any, by any stretch of the imagination at this point, but you know, there are reminders and to hear that, for men or anyone that commits sexual violence that they don't go back to it. Just if that's a hard swallow. Yeah. Yeah, It hurts. That's really, you know, it just, it hurts to realize how disproportionate the aftermath of sexual violence can be Mm -hmm. that men move on with their lives and achieve, you know, whatever, and the you you know the victims you you live with it. I mean, I was joking when I said like America, but then I wasn't. No, but no, no. <laughs> I think yeah. how right often on. does America think of the native population? How often do we think about Iraqi victims of our bombing runs? Like, yeah. we are designed, programmed, and featured to ignore the pain that yeah. we inflict and the people on whom we inflict it. Yeah. yeah. I think maybe we should play a clip from the talk that Parker gave that both Baratunde and Tanner have referenced. It was on August 26th at a VIP screening of the film. For the most part, from what I understand, Parker has has been not speaking publicly. I mean, certainly in in maybe printed interviews, but has not been appearing in, in public places. And this is from what I understand, the first time he has in, in some time, within a minute and a half of the of the Q and A starting, he began to address this unprompted. My privilege as a man, I never thought about it. I'm walking around ready to get in. To I'm, I'm daring someone to, to 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 say something or do something that I define as racist or is holding us back, um, but never really thinking about um, the the, the you know, male culture. And the, and the destructive effect is happening on our community now. Um, so I don't pretend to be perfect, y'all. Like I said, those comments need your reaction. But I'm learning. You know, these last couple weeks, I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of women inside my family, outside my family, and uh, and I'm in a growth period. And uh, I'm trying. I'm trying to get better. Trying to make better decisions about not just how I protect my daughters or whatever women close me, but women that aren't my daughters. Uh, and how I educate men as to how, when they get ready to go to school, or whatever they're doing, um, behaviors that are just unhealthy, you know, whether it be in the barbershop talking about getting girls, or be on the train hollering at a girl, um, we need to change the conversation about how we respect women. The thing about that conversation that they're having is, and I've watched it like three times, or listened to it three times, he does still seem to be dancing around the issue. And then I went and, and I feel frustrated by, by that. There, there's a part of his conversation that was not in that clip where he's talking about being a young male and how a lot of what defined masculinity was getting girls to say yes. And part of me is thinking, but did, she didn't say yes. Right. She, the, the girl that you, that you were, you know, that you're, you're accused of, of, uh, of assaulting was, was unconscious. And it, so there seemed like to be some weird disconnects there. You know, he doesn't ever use the word sexual, sexual assault, not with regards to himself, but even in general. So, and, and that might be a legal thing. I mean, maybe he's I being, think it yeah. probably is yeah. that he only refers to it as an incident from my past mm-hmm. and having caused harm and pain and pain yeah. and talk around the specifics of the issue. He's still open probably to civil claims and mm. has had a lawyer probably coach him on what he can't say. Yeah. But it's 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 weird and fascinating to watch this play out because again, most a lot of people in the public eye I feel would remove themselves entirely and not be in any sort of conversation about it. Like Bill Cosby. Yeah. Exactly. Who had rules about what you could talk about. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so to see him struggle with it, I have I have empathy, but I'm not I, I'm not feeling warmly. <laughs> I'll, put it, I'll put it that way. Cold empathy for Nate Parker. Cold That's hard our title. empathy. <laughs> Nate Parker in <laughs> the birth of cold hard empathy. <laughs> um 
Well, I, I want to know if you guys are going to see the movie. Roxanne, you, you said that you said in the op-ed that you wrote that you were not going to see the film. Do you still feel that way? I absolutely do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even though today I was really moved by Gabrielle Union's editorial in the Los Angeles Times, whether she was asked to write it by the studio or not, I found it to be extraordinarily moving and powerful and thoughtful and the way she intertwined being a survivor of sexual assault and being a black woman and being a movie star who has a significant role in birth of a nation Mm -hmm. and still, you know, and being a mother. Yeah, Yeah. uh, she is. And so that meant a lot to me, but I'm still not going to see the movie (laughs) and it's not stubbornness. It really isn't. I just, it's too close to home for me. What about you, Tanner? Are you going to see it? I, I totally empathize with that point of view, and because Nate Parker's right here in front of us today to wrestle with this and say you won't see it, I, I understand that point of view, but just to zoom out to 10,000 feet and look at it from a global point of view, I think it's it's much, for me, a much too morally simplistic point of view to take because good people do heinous things all the time, heinous people do good things all the time, the world is a far more complicated place than this. You know, first of all, to, to her point about Gabriel Union, yeah, this is Nate Parker's baby. If you subscribe to the auteur theory, it's his, it's his film, but it's also Gabriel Union's film. You know, if you take the Roman Polanski example, that's Robert Towns, you know, greatest screenplay ever and one of the finest examples of screenplay writing ever is should you not see it because of Roman Polanski? But, you know, it's, there's many people, many moving parts involved in those things. The other th- problem is that, like, you know, Werner von Braun, who invented the rockets, who took us to the moon, invented that technology in Jewish labor camps that used slave labor during the Holocaust. You can never you can never divorce heinous things from good things. They're all intertwined and if you if you try to thread that needle you'll, you'll never leave your house. Well, maybe um, maybe yeah, maybe but but you can choose not to like spend money on something that that directly impacts someone you that can. you don't that you don't uh want to financially benefit. Um and and, and that would be a reason not to go see the film. The thing is, I will go see the film. Right. The reason I'll see it is because I want to see it. But it's also because despite what Nate Parker is accused of doing and, and you know, after having read some of those trial transcripts, again, I'm not feeling warmly towards him. <laughs> Let's just say Cold that. Yeah. Got it. I do feel that we are in a moment in the culture and in American history where things are being talked about that weren't being talked about with the same sort of vigor as they once were. I do prioritize the sending a message to Hollywood that it's important to empower and amplify the voices of people of color as storytellers. But I feel torn about it. And, I, and that might yeah. be a controversial <laughs> opinion, but I, but I, but I think that that's, that's part of it for me. What about you? I will see the film mm. and I won't be on any sized horse about that, <laughs> forcing people to see it who are opposed or suggesting that, that you shouldn't see it. Just hearing your reasons, hearing Tanner's reasons, hearing Roxanne's reasons especially. I'm like, yeah, every every consumer decision is fraught with a moral choice if we choose to to peel back the layers. And what goes into this shirt that I'm wearing? What goes into this rent that I'm paying? Mm-hmm. Like there's there's always choices behind our choices and there's often suffering behind those. So in this case, uh, I think the story of Nat Turner mm-hmm. is one that this nation needs. We have made a, such a habit as Americans, broadly speaking, that is, of not ever looking back. We are obsessed with the future. We think the past was an inconvenience or great because mm-hmm. we want to return to it. Like yeah. There's a, generally half of the politically aligned people in this country want to yeah. make it great again yeah. in some weird, twisted way of, of reimagining history. So I think this is a great moment for us to see that story, to see resistance to oppression, mm-hmm. not just survival of mm-hmm. oppression. And, oh, they had spirituals. Weren't they noble and great? Yeah. Oh, they made blues music. Isn't that, isn't that just dandy? Like, no. Mm-hmm. People were, were really trying to rise up. Mm-hmm. And, and I think for black people is important. I think for non-black people, it's important. And, you know, we're having a lot of current conversations about who, lives that matter, police brutality. So many of these have roots in our original uh, source code yeah. of the country huh. and that and that slavery. So it's nice to re- for us to return to that in a major way, not in a, a special public broadcasting right. opt opt in if right. you're super liberal and carry a tote bag, mm-hmm. 
But there's going to be major marketing. There's going to be press tours and interviews. Are, and you, are you shading PBS? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I love PBS. I'm on PBS. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> so I'm I know what kidding. it's like. I'm kidding. But, uh, but I think, you know, where my conflict was earlier was, like, if he pretends this is not a parallel issue or mm-hmm. topic, mm-hmm. that's going to make it harder to see. Yeah. These most recent print and video interviews make it easier to credibly say we can use this as an opportunity to talk about justice, broadly speaking. Yeah. Because he's not hiding from it. The studio doesn't is not pretending nothing happened. So let's keep judging him as he tries to use his platform for good beyond mm-hmm. his own self-promotion. And let's also assess the movie, which is, to Tanner's point, the work of probably hundreds of other people sure. right. on its merits as a, as a creative project. Mm-hmm. That's not solely an endorsement of, of his all of his life choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, one thing to that point, what I thought was interesting as I was reading through a bunch of the information about this, you know, Nate Parker, and now we've gets, we get thrown into the pile with Polanski, Cosby, Woody Allen, all these people who have been either convicted or accused or alleged of different misdeeds and whether or not we should pay money to consume their art. The whole separating the art and the artist, I don't see how you can. Or, or you can't boycott someone based on the heinousness because it's just too complicated. And the people who are bad people, people who've done bad things can in some ways create, say astonishing, interesting things that are worth considering. Is it really that complicated though? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I find it to be incredibly simple. Like Woody Allen is trash. I don't think that it's that easy because for example, what we're doing when we say, that we need to hear the story of Nat Turner is that we're placing like historical importance over the dignity of women who have been raped. We're saying like one thing is more important than the other. The reality is that no one's keeping Nat Turner's story secret. There's this thing called books and (laughs) people can totally read all about Nat Turner in these books. And they have been able to do that for probably 50, 60, 70, 80 more or more years. And so I I actually hear everything both of you you guys are saying, but, you know, I do think sometimes it really is as simple as saying, is the world really going to change if people don't go to see this movie? Of course not. But all too often women are told your stories, your histories of violence don't matter. Mm -hmm. That You know, it's just the way the world is. And it's just a thing that happens and just sort of, you know, be quiet for the greater good. And, I don't know that there is a greater good served. It it is, I think going to be an important movie. And I I have a lot of empathy for all of the people involved who are seeing their work diminished because of something that two men did. But at the same time, there are so many survivors out there who are going to see his history placed prioritized over being, you know, over, testimony and that's that's a bitter pill to swallow it is yeah a, a bitter pill to swallow i i hear what you're saying i really do and i think that's part of the nuance in, of this circumstance because we're not making let's put this more subjectively i'm not making broad categorical statements mm-hmm. that in these cases one should always do this that or the other thing i think it's very case dependent for me this seeing the film makes sense because some of my complexity and frustration around his actions and his accountability and the way this issue, women's lives matter, hashtag, would, could be buried, doesn't seem to be happening. Because mm-hmm. he's actually creating, you know, using the space that the movie's creating to create space for this, uh, this parallel conversation, which normally is steamrolled. Uh, in another case, I might have a different opinion. Be like, you know what? You're a terrible messenger. And I don't care how good the message is. We'll find another messenger. There's other talented people who can make a dope Nat Turner movie five years from now. Mm -hmm. Or some other distributor can pick up a different film. Like there's mad talented people who could do this. In this case, I don't think that that's my my calculus on it. But uh, I don't think there is a broad rule that can be applied. Like, oh, you never separate the artist from the artist or you always separate. I think mm-hmm. it depends on the artist, depends on the art and it depends on the, on the context. And and it's very subjective to your own experience and your own sure. empathy, yeah. and your own pain around, around the issue. I might feel super, you know, strongly on, on another topic on another point of injustice or yeah. oppression. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's, it's not only a subjective 
thing for me. It's it's very emotional, which is not mm. to say that I that I am getting emotional about it, but it's very possible that if you took a, a similar situation a year from now, that I would react very differently for whatever reason. For whatever reason, there, there there are lots of things that are feeding into my decision to go see the film, and that I'm not even sure that I've teased out. One thing I'd say that I hope they don't do, and actually this is the thing I didn't like about Gabrielle Union's op-ed, and it was also being echoed a little bit in the conversation that Nate Parker had that we listened to a little bit of, was in the op-ed, you know, she's talking very, as Roxanne said, very powerfully about her own sexual assault, about being a woman, about being a mother of boys. And towards the end, it felt like it took a tiny little pivot that, that the film distributor had a part in. It's because there's, there's a quote and she says, I believe that the film is an opportunity to inform and educate so that these situations cease to occur on college campuses, in dorm rooms, in fraternities, in apartments, or anywhere else young people get together to socialize. And I'm thinking, I don't see how the film The Birth of a Nation has anything to do with campus sexual assault, other than the fact that its creator was accused of it. But I don't see how you well, take— Well, there is rape in the movie. Right, but not? it's not about rape on, uh, by, uh, well, right. uh, by, of college students. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and, and so it felt like it, felt like it was like pushing like it a, a little bit. Yeah, like, come on. Like, I mean, you can, you can, she could have said, I believe that the, the, that the controversies around the film are opportunities right. to inform, but she said, I believe that the film is. And maybe mm, that's right. being inartful, but the fact that he said something very similar in his discussion on the 26th, I just thought, please don't let that be like the little pivot you guys are going to take. You guys, meaning the studio, the, the, the studio, and everyone yeah. involved. Like, yeah. like, like, don't push that because, like, no one's buying that. No one's buying that the film is going to teach anybody about college campus rape. Please, <laughs> I think I definitely see that pivot, and it's there. And I, I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that pivot because it's like, oh, girl, really? No, <laughs> no. I think that's exactly the route they're going to go. I think they're going to try it and they're going to get a lot of backlash if they, if, oh, if, if they, they try that explicitly, really. I mean, I can tell them right now. Right. I mean, there's just so little connection between the two. It's, it's, it's just sad. And I think that shows how impossible this situation must be for them because there's nothing really you can do. That's going to like make it better. No, 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 but really? they, but, 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 they, but he can continue to talk about it. And again, I don't think he should be forced to talk about it and you know, under duress. But I think that he, you know, that that would make me uncomfortable too. But, but I, I think that he should continue to talk about it if he has something to share and and his his wants to share the way he's evolving and his his ideas about the past and about the present are evolving. But um, I, I almost feel like the best thing that they can do publicity wise, and I don't know why I'm giving them publicity <laughs> advice, is to just chill, hmm. like just sit back. So yeah, I think they need to just relax. I mean, because the discourse is going to happen with or without them. Right. Yeah. The door has been open. I still, I still marvel at how, I mean, look, Bill Cosby was a very different case in, yeah. in so many well, ways. He was a serial predator. Yeah. Allegedly. Do we but, still have to use allegedly? But the system <laughs> no. of suppression around him was so effective mm-hmm. because so many people were getting cuts. You know, you mm-hmm. had people willing to green light projects, pretend nothing happened, bodyguards, public, like it was too big to be a conspiracy. It was mm-hmm. just business as usual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there was no parallel conversation. Bill Cosby was not an opportunity while making his art right. to have a discussion about this, that, or the other thing. Right. So now we've shifted the time. We like TiVo'd this a little yeah. bit. And so even before the movies come out, we're talking about the issues raised by the actions of the creator. Mm-hmm. And that just feels like the accelerating pace of media having an impact on, on when conversations can happen. Right. And then the ways the things that you've done in your past will can, can, can come Catch back. Yeah. Um, and, and, and not, you know, not necessarily in a bad way. I mean, you like, you look at this Roger Ailes stuff. I mm. mean, especially that piece that came out today that in New York magazine about what, what it. What did it say? Um, Oh, it just detailed. It just detailed crazy stuff that we that maybe you suspected, but but like just like the specifics of of how he harassed and I would argue assaulted a number of women, many women, dozens of women over over decades in his career as a television executive, and how he was abetted by his own staff, some of whom were female. With Cosby and with Ailes and with even Woody Allen, those men made something of themselves and I don't mean that in a complimentary way mm-hmm. but they were no, they were somewhat known entities if not very known entities before they were acu- accused of violence against women or the harassment of women this is happening at the beginning at least of Nate Parker's directing career it, so it feels very 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 different for that in that respect I actually wonder whether you think this is going to affect his career. Like, does he have a career after this? Someone told me the other day that that, that she felt that he, his career was over, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't think he because he doesn't have as much leverage. He doesn't have 
like with Ailes and and you know even Mel Gibson to an extent and all these other people, they have leverage. Nate Parker was just getting a foot on the ladder and it got kicked out from under him. And so like what incentive do you have now? I gotta have Nate Parker in my film. I don't see it. If I'm casting, if I'm looking for the hot young black actor in my film, well, why don't I just go with Michael B. Jordan? As an actor, I don't know why you need to hire Nate Parker at this point, especially when black actors in Hollywood are so being so underused that there are plenty of them waiting. Do you think it'd be different if he was white? If indeed you're saying that you think Nate Parker's career is over, do you think it'd be different if he was white? I don't know. It's hard to say, but for this to happen at, at the entry point of your career, to your point versus the other guys who are more established. Why do I need you? If I'm a producer, why do I need you hmm. and your problems? I don't think it's over for him. It could be. I think it depends yeah. on like a year from now. Yeah. What are we talking about? Mm-hmm. When you say the words Nate Parker, what images does it evoke? Is this someone who has made an even more sincere, more public and deeper commitment to facing his demons and helping others unlock their demons before they unlock on someone else? Mm-hmm. He could really be a part of a transformation here with toxic masculinity yeah. by Nate Parker. Right. Like if he does a documentary <laughs> about this next, like somebody might want need him for that. Hey, here's, here's, here's a question: Have have we heard from from Denzel Washington and his mentors and the people who brought him up? Uh, not that I, I know. Don't think of. so. I think it's not been deafening silence from like, when, yeah, when, the senior the senior uh, leadership. Well, when, it, when, it, when Mel Gibson hit was the fan, Denzel his his mentor? Yeah, he put him in okay. the great debaters mm-hmm. okay. and and. They were had a close like when Mel Gibson hit the fan. You had Jodie Foster and Robert Downey Jr. kind of like speaking up for him. Who's speaking up for Nate Parker? Is is Gina Prince Blythewood speaking up? Are, are the yeah. people who who brought him along and gave him his his previous breaks circling the wagons around him? Roxanne, what do you think about 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 both his career going forward and and you know have you heard of anybody? Or hey, may I just tag on to this? Yeah. Do you even care? Yeah. I surely don't. Uh, I do not care. I really don't care. But that's because I don't know him. Yeah. Um, I mean, we care about people that we know and or like. I will say, to be fair, that I think he's extraordinarily talented. I loved him in Beyond the Lights. And I also thought he was really good in The Great Debaters. And from everything I've heard about Birth of a Nation, he has a real directorial eye. And I don't think that... You should not be able to practice your art because because of uh, committing a crime, making a mistake, however you want to term it. It's a question of whether or not I am going to support that art and whether mm. we as a culture should support that. But, you know, as long as Woody Allen and Roman Polanski and Robert Downey Jr. and Johnny Depp and all of these other guys, Charlie Sheen. Who, you know, these Seriously, people who, yeah. you know, these really bad things are allowed to continue their careers. Should Nate Parker be able to continue his career? Yeah, but it sucks to say that. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's yeah. a bunch of shitty choices mm-hmm. all around. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that he is going to get some blowback from this, but I don't think this is going to end his career. The silence is kind of deafening that mm-hmm. nobody has stood up when whenever Woody Allen is accused of something, they'll like trot out Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. And, Diane Keaton. <laughs> yeah. And they'll just be like, Oh, Woody is the greatest. Yeah. And then, and then people like Kate Blanchett will still work with him. Okay. So we're going to end our discussion of Nate Parker there for now. Though the conversation's not over. Tell us what you think by sending us an email or a voice memo. The address is showaboutrace at gmail.com. As listeners may remember, back in April, the New York Times ran a powerful front page piece about how Georgetown University had profited from slavery via the sale of human beings by Jesuit priests to raise money to deal with the institution's debts and keep the university going. Yesterday, the university announced that it will be taking a series of steps to address the way it profited from the labor and sale of enslaved people. John DeJoya, Georgetown's president, spoke recently about how descendants of slaves will now enjoy preference for admission, like legacy applicants. Georgetown has offered a formal apology and will set up an institute for the study of slavery. In addition, they will create a memorial for the men, women, and children whose labor and bodies were used to benefit the school. It's a step in the right direction. ta Coates even suggested yesterday on Twitter that what Georgetown did is reparations, or the beginning of it. But is this step going far enough? 
my quick opinion is it's it's a good sign, but I'm not like cheering. Bartuna, you're from DC. I right? am from. So DC. you probably have lots of opinions about Georgetown, and what it represents, <laughs> and what it's like. Because that I that I have no literacy with. So they're in a nice part of town. I got a beautiful campus, right. That I never set foot on once. Okay. Um, no, this is look. I I want to encourage positive behavior. Yeah. This is a positive step. My initial thoughts when I I got a, a text alert from one of the many news apps that interrupt me and change my mood throughout the day. Yes. And it said, Georgetown University plans to acknowledge its role and atone for and, and do this and that for slavery. And I'm like, oh, if we could just search and replace Georgetown University mm-hmm. with the United States of America, mm-hmm. we'd be getting somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so they they represent a more significant step than most institutions have been willing to take from my informal studies of history mm-hmm. in acknowledging a, that this happened, B, that profits were derived from these actions, C, that there were real human beings behind all this, yeah. and D, that like we're going to do something about it. We're going to you know, build buildings and create institutes of study and apologize and edit our admissions process to make some space for these people. So I don't think it's enough, but I do think it's a step and it's a real step, and it's from a significant institution mm-hmm. that has real reputation, real weight in the media and in the academic and kind of higher education world. So. I slow clap, one-handed applaud this. This is the sound of me. <laughs> Yay, George now. I can vaguely hear it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a little, it's a light yeah. breeze no, over the is. microphone. <laughs> Tanner, what about you? I think I would disagree with Tanahasi. I think it falls much more under the heading of truth and reconciliation than reparation. And I think that's important to have the acknowledgement of it, to have the, you know, written on the side of the building, the names of the these slaves that were sold, to acknowledge it and to have the Institute of Study dedicated to it. I will say... In, in all, a lot of my research, because a lot of my book deals with race in the Catholic Church, the Jesuits, yes, they own slaves, but like in, in so many ways in the rebound from that, they've been the good guys. The neighborhood that integrated in Kansas City in my book was led by a social justice committee at a Jesuit church. The church I profiled in Southern Louisiana in my book was a Jesuit parish that was a segregated Jesuit parish with a black and a white, two separate congregations that were, and most of the black congregants were descended from slaves that were owned by the Jesuit order that ran the parish. And when the Jesuits, uh, when the slaves were freed by the, after the Civil War, you know, the Jesuits, you know, said, Please stay and work for us, and we'll educate you for free. We will. We, you were no longer slaves. We will educate you. Please stay. Mm-hmm. We want to make this right. And you, so you have this real tight relationship between the blacks in this community who were formerly owned by Jesuits and the Jesuits who are now working with them to educate them. So the Jesuits really do a lot of amazing things on this front, belatedly in many cases. But um, so I'm I'm encouraged by it from that point of view. But it definitely points up the challenges of short of a comprehensive America wide truth and reconciliation slash reparations, just sort of a piecemeal. So what we got the descendants of 200 people and then, well, no, yeah. that's all the slaves. They were just in the U S history. They're just yeah, a couple hundred slaves in DC, right? Right. Like that was about it. And then and we're good. Right. <laughs> and then, and then Tanahasi makes the argument about, you know, a lot of these real estate corporations and, and the uh, real estate brokers. Wait, that, where? Wait, wait, in his, in, in, his, in, his, in piece? his piece. Okay. Yeah. That well then okay if it's he says it's not based on race it's based on plunder, then it's okay who can prove pl- that they were plundered, so you it, it, so to have a, you know Georgetown do a thing and have Harvard to do a thing and have Warren Buffett's housing co- company do a thing mm-hmm. that that kind of piecemeal patchwork is going to be. Eh. But that's but look that's how America works right we we don't generally have national policies very much. We have 50 laboratories of democracy where each state can try out its own thing. And (laughs) and a certain state will say marriage is equal here, but not next door. And then eventually we get enough momentum and the Supreme Court rules as one example or the way wireless technology works in this country. We have, that's a little nerdy for most of our listeners, but let's, let's just say that you could create, if Georgetown isn't alone, (laughs) and if it's followed by Goldman Sachs or some other significant institution, and we look five to 10 years from now, will there be enough mm-hmm. momentum that that will trip a wire of national policy for a national mm-hmm. truth? Step one, national reconciliation. Step two, national proto-reparations. Mm-hmm. Na- you know, so we can work our way up that, up that ladder, but it, it, maybe it starts with this major u- university. Is, yeah. it, is there something to the fact that, it, that, that this... It started with a major university. I mean, Roxanne, you're an academic as well as a as well as a, a writer. I don't know if school has started where you are at Purdue, and if you've had conversations with other 
with you know professional colleagues or students about this, but I want to know what you think about the fact that this is situated within a, a an academic institution and what you think more broadly. Uh, you know, I think it's important that it's situated within an academic institution, but Jesuits are different. Um, <laughs> Hashtag. Jesuits, yeah, Jesuits are different, and I, I think it's this is the kind of thing that you would only see from Jesuits. They very much believe in education and the power of education, and they also believe in reconciliation. They believe in bettering society. I, I hate to sound like a Jesuit fangirl, but I'm Catholic, for one. There, the, there's a lot to critique about the Jesuit order, but they have always been advocates for social justice. And so I think most universities are not oriented that way. We might see something like that from an Oberlin you know, mm-hmm. schools that are about social justice, but from most universities, no, we're, we would never see this kind of thing. I think it's a step in the right direction, but, you know, just giving someone an advantage for admissions at a university that costs like fifty or $60,000 is 70, not 70000 yeah. 70000 yeah. All in. <gasps> That's just, I mean, real reparations would be free tuition and yeah. very robust academic support. Like, Descendants of slaves shouldn't have to pay a single thing to attend Georgetown. That was something, yeah, that that was something that struck me in the Times story yesterday. I'll just quote the reporter. Uh, So far, Dr. DeJoy's plan does not include a provision for offering scholarships to descendants, a possibility that was raised by a university committee whose recommendations were released on Thursday morning, meaning yesterday morning. The committee, however, stopped short of calling on the university to provide such financial assistance as well as admissions preference. And end quote. When I read that, I was kind of disgusted because the university has a one and a half billion dollar endowment and this kind of like stopping short of uh, of agreeing to some sort of a financial assistance. And I think the other thing that that bothers me about this and, you know, hopefully they will evolve and learn was that they didn't really they didn't ask any of the descendants of these slaves to be part of the committee that made the recommendations, mm. weirdly. And some of the people, some descendants are upset about that. And there were a couple who were quoted in that piece, I think rightly criticizing the university administration for not including them or inviting descendants of the slaves who had been sold to the event yesterday. I guess that would brings me to my concern that this is not going to be a sustained effort, that it's only right. for the publicity. What? Well, reparations washing? Right. <laughs> I think you, you, you also... I'm on fire today. Mom. You are good. You have a, you have a perfect storm. whatever you drink today. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have a perfect storm here of the Jesuit social justice mission coinciding with documentation, right? Mm-hmm. To what To what extent can most black Americans trace specifically that's the guy who did it 150 years ago or 200 years ago. Like how, how specific are those records? I don't know what, what there's a lot has been lost in the sauce, so to speak. This could be a very positive story because it's like, cool. You're acknowledging this history. You're starting to own up to uh, no pun intended your past, but then it's a depressing story Mm -hmm. because of how exceptional it is Mm -hmm. and all the factors that had to come together the primary one being willingness, yeah, curiosity, mm-hmm. investigatory vigor. Mm-hmm. This country is very incurious. <laughs> Most people the, yeah. don't want oh, to sure. know. Like you can't handle the truth yeah. is legit when it comes to this topic because totally. it would be devastating, not just financially, but emotionally for people to really reckon with the idea that if you're white in this country, the stuff I got is not stuff that my ancestors alone provided mm-hmm, for me, that I, mm-hmm. I am here for the suffering of other people. Mm-hmm. And that is some real, that's like a, that's a head job. America's not even close to being ready to, to swallow that pill. Maybe these Jesuits in this, you know, a university, a pretty yeah. safe academic space, yeah. so to speak, uh, could pull it off. So that's, that's the depressing side of the story to me. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not just a lack of an, an inability to indulge or a lack of curiosity, but it's also the the fact that a lot of people, and I guess this is human to a certain degree, are immediately defensive and, and adopt that posture, which I think, you know, is indicative of a lack of curiosity, but also a lack of emotional maturity. I was actually surprised that the Times piece yesterday had, had they'd opened up the comments on it. And I, I, I saw oh, there were like did nine. You read the comments? Oh, I did read the comments. Why'd no, you read the comments? Because I wanted to see like what, what, what the prevailing sentiment was of the commenters on the New York Times site. You know, I, I wouldn't look at the comments on a YouTube piece. 
case. Right. Um, so what'd you find? I found that there were a lot of defensive white people. Yeah. They were upset. And I, I really. I, 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 <laughs> oh, can I make a parallel? Yes. Leap back to Nate Parker. Yeah, go ahead. All right. So here's <laughs> we got a Nate Parker type situation mm-hmm. where his immediate response to being called on his past actions mm-hmm. was, what about me? Yeah. I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. Let's focus on the pain that this is causing me. I mm-hmm. got my film coming out. This is a distraction. I, a bad thing happened. Yeah. Like this passive voice, third person, definitely never first person. Yeah. No active verbs going yeah. on in his totally. first response. Mm-hmm. And only after being checked a number of times and being willing, yeah. did he start to accept the coaching, use the language, and maybe we'll see continue this conversation. Mm-hmm. America's a way worse Nate Parker. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. And and to your point, yeah, there's there's so many hyper defensive, like white people just don't want to hear it. And then they want they want the paperwork. Well, can you prove? Yeah. And uh, well, I, I can understand if you had the, the genealogical studies right. to show, but yeah. then we'd have to trace that to the specific plantation and all yeah. of a sudden they want to get real technical. Yeah. My great my great great grandfather, <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't have to I shouldn't have to pay for what my great 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 grandfather yeah. might have done and you know. Listeners, if you want to chime in, come back for the B-side next week. You can email us your comments and voice memos again. The email address for the show is showaboutrace at gmail.com. Okay, so with regards to recommendations, what have you been reading, watching, listening to that our listeners need to know about or that you just have an opinion on? Okay, I want to keep it slavery. Okay. Um, So I'm going to recommend the WGN series. Underground. Mm-hmm. This is produced by uh, John Legend, Tyus the Glorious, Mike Jackson. They form the Get Lifted production company, uh, of whom I am a fan. And uh, that's why I'm being so specific to call them out, because I also want to give them credit. This is a series about the Underground Railroad. Uh-huh. And it's got adult music track. It's got twists and turns. But I think in the theme of looking backwards in order to understand now and be able to credibly step forward... Uh, this is a nice pop cultural access point to a piece of our history mm-hmm. that we like to gloss over once a year with some posters and some very superficial words. Check out Underground. And if you if you don't have a television, quote unquote, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Nobody has a television, but you have a screen yeah. capable of showcasing moving images. So you can get this. It's on iTunes. It's uh, online in various places. Uh, I don't want your complaints. Tanner, recommendations. Uh, so, yeah, I've been reading. I picked up uh, Racecraft by Barbara and Karen Fields. Excellent book. Basically comparing racism to witchcraft. The <laughs> Because it is, it's it's, it's make believe and bubble bubble toilet. No, trouble. and, and <laughs> I'm not even going to finish that rhyme. Oh my Go god! Ahead. Yeah. It's it's it it, wrong. it's a fascinating book about how probably most direct example they bring up is again you talk about passive voice descriptions of racism, but you know the man was shot because of the color of his skin. No, the man was shot because of the racism of the thought the shooter. In, of the shooter. <laughs> yeah. So racecraft is the witchcraft by which racism is turned into race. Mm. And we make everything about race, even though race doesn't exist. When it's really should all be about racism. It's a fascinating book. Very, it's a little dense, a little academic. It's, it's like very academic. It's not, uh, accessible at all but <laughs> basically but you still recommend it even yeah, though it, yeah if, if, if you want to get in the weeds and 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 get into it it's uh it's a fascinating argument and can can readers come to you for like a kind of cliff notes version of it <laughs> tweet it, at tanner yeah, colby yeah just tweet at him and ask yeah. him to explain stuff <laughs> hashtag like, racecraft like, that hashtag. sounds like a great book oh wait oh wait <laughs> roxanne do you have any uh recommendations for the yeah book? i'm gonna recommend another brooklyn by jacqueline woodson hmm it's a gorgeous, gorgeous book about black girlhood and coming of age in Brooklyn. And it recently came out and I was just really, really moved by the lyricism of the novel. And she just captured girlhood so, so well while telling a really compelling story. So another Brooklyn. I read The Galley some time ago and then just picked it up again. I think it's set in the 80s. Okay. When I was a girl, I think you were a girl then too. Yes, we are the same age. age. (laughs) I don't have any recommendations that are specific because I haven't really done anything in the past week, but watch the night of. Really? And and prepare for this podcast. And I don't know if I'd recommend the oh, you night recommend? Oh, okay. No. I thought you were telling us to watch the night No, 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 no. I, I don't know that I'd recommend it. Like okay. I, but, yeah. but I mean, I think, I think it, it was certainly, it was compelling enough and I wanted to finish it. And I saw the, you know, the uh, finale was this past Sunday along with anyone else who was somewhat addicted to it. It didn't deal with race 
in a way that it could have. I'm not saying it should have. Uh, the the protagonist is a is a Pakistani American um, young man, and, and not a lot is delved into with regards to his background. I did have some complaints, and I saw these were being echoed as as well elsewhere that some of the African American characters were one note or were often portrayed as the worst of the worst of all the bad guys who were in this movie. And there are a lot of bad guys, but I don't want to say that I want to recommend it because, <laughs> because I'm not, I'm not certain about it, but I didn't really, I didn't really take in anything else culture wise. Did you read any tweets this week that really, not really jumped out to no. you? Like, did you retweet no. anything? We were like, yo, we, oh, oh, check oh, out oh well, I, I got upset last night on Twitter because I was uh, notified to the existence of a really horrible Phil Mushnick column in the New York Post today about Colin Kaepernick. It's a lazy, lazy, lazy column. And I realize that a lot of columnists are lazy, that they really are hacks. They are. Because especially if they've been doing it for years, like they're just phoning it in. But God knows how much this guy's getting paid to make comments like the the something along the lines of the worst thing facing the black community is the black community. I mean, he was he, he was he was it was like it was like, let's blame black people. Bingo. Um, <laughs> That he was playing in that column. That actually would be uh, that show would do well <laughs> in many parts of this. And I don't country. know why I was so upset because it's in the New York fucking Post. I mean, yeah, of course. Why? But yeah. but but there was just there was something that felt like so 1997 about it, and it was so lazy. Speaking of like a lack of curiosity, yeah. that is like example a lack of curiosity one. paired with overt confidence. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's the amazing thing. It's I know. a beautiful that's mixture. The, that's the amazing thing about it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, but you almost have to be stupid to be that confident. Because mm. if you are an aware person, you are aware of how much you don't know. You'd be like hedging yourself a little bit. Right. Yeah. But hopes. to be one of these Fox News guys that just like goes and bloviates ad nauseum about everything, you can't know how much you don't know. In their defense, not that I want to defend them, there are lots of people on the other side of the spectrum who are just as bloviating and just as big blowhards who act like they know everything, you know, and, mm-hmm. and oftentimes they're on Twitter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oftentimes that's what I see on Twitter. So two non-recommendations. <laughs> and three actual recommendations. It's actually a good recommendation to know what to avoid. Yeah. Twitter, the New York Post, and the Night Of. No, there no, 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 no. I don't, I don't say avoid the Night Of. I'm just, I'm just, I'm not, yeah, I'm not gushing over it the way that some people were it's gushing. It was very beautifully shot. Um, and yeah. So that's it. Um, all right. That's all for today. Our producer is AC Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Alana Milner is our intern. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of wonderful podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. And follow along with the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at showaboutrace. Or, lastly, again, you can email us at showaboutrace at gmail.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of Tanner Colby, Roxanne Gay, and Baratunde Thurston, I'm Anna Holmes, and we won't stop until racism is over. (laughs) 